0: Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 106, The Art of Power. Thanks for joining me. As always, before we get started, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. Without your help, this show would not be possible. As for the rest of you, I'd like to invite you to join us on Patreon. We just published the 15th of our bonus episodes, which included topics like crime and punishment in Napoleonic France and the United Irishmen Rebellion of 1798. And of course, as always, patrons will have access to ad-free versions of the regular episodes. If any of that sounds appealing to you, visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon, and you can get access for as little as $2 a month. Anyway, we spent last episode looking at Napoleon's reforms and construction projects within the city of Paris, and taking a brief look at daily life in the City of Lights under the First Empire. In this episode, I'd like to continue on some of those same themes. As some of you may have noticed, there was a big glaring hole in our discussions of culture last episode, perhaps the most popular of all the attractions and pastimes of Napoleonic Paris – visual art. This was a golden age for painting and sculpture. Much broader swaths of the public had access to the art world than at any point in history, and people of all classes were eager to see what it had to offer. Those in power were well aware of this trend, and many played an active role in encouraging it, both out of genuine interest and out of an appreciation for the power of art. The epicenter of fine arts in Napoleonic France, arguably all of Europe, or even the entire world, was the institution we know as the Louvre Museum. Under the First Empire, it was known under a different name, the Napoleon Museum, which I think says something about just how important art was to the imperial government. However, in the interest of simplicity, I'll refer to the museum by its modern name. The Louvre was a new institution, less than a decade old when Napoleon rose to power. Contrary to popular belief, it was not the first art museum in history. The Uffizi of Florence, Oxford's Ashmolean, the British Museum, the Cortile del Belvedere and the Capitoline Museums of the Vatican, and Paris's own Palais Royal all hosted art collections that were open to the public. But the Louvre, or the Central Museum of the Arts as it was originally known, was different. Those earlier institutions were not yet really museums in the modern sense. They were private collections belonging to institutions or families that were open to the public as an act of charity by their owners. The Louvre was the first museum in history that really had the mission of a modern museum. The people who built and maintained its collection were public servants, who saw themselves merely as stewards of art that belonged to the entire nation, perhaps even all of humanity. The French state saw the museum as an important pillar of the national greatness, and supported it with the type of resources few private institutions could hope to match. This way of doing things proved so successful that the Louvre would become the model for every other art museum in the world. Even today, a lot of the terminology and organization of museums are based on innovations pioneered at the Louvre during this era. The Louvre is closely associated with the Revolution. No surprise, it was overseen by the National Convention and opened in 1793, just as the Revolution was entering its most tumultuous phase. But more than that, the museum's mission fit perfectly with the ethos of the Revolution, The idea that the nation's cultural patrimony belonged to all the people of the nation, not only to a privileged few, dovetailed perfectly with the patriotic civic nationalism espoused by the new regime. The idea of a public space, open to all, where all visitors would be on equal footing, was inherently democratic. The museum represented the revolutionaries' higher intellectual aspirations, or pretensions depending on your perspective, the dissemination of knowledge, and the advance of human progress. The first director of the Louvre, Jean-Marie Roland de La Platière, put it this way, quote, I believe the museum will have so great an effect on people's spirits, will so elevate their souls and stir their hearts, that it will be the most powerful means of illuminating the French Republic. End quote. Ironically, the idea of a public art museum at the Louvre was not dreamed up by some idealistic young revolutionary. It was originally a project of the old regime that was appropriated by the revolutionary government surprisingly late in its development. The Louvre began hosting art in the early 18th century, when it was just one of many disused royal palaces in and around Paris. At this stage, it was not a museum. These were temporary exhibitions hosted by the royal government. They were so popular, they became a regular event, held every two years. The original venue for these exhibitions was a room at the Louvre called the Salon Carré, which is why even today, in many languages, this type of regular exhibition of new art is called a salon. We don't know exactly how many people attended these salons, but they were massively popular. At their pre-revolutionary peak, we can almost certainly say that over 50,000 people a year attended which would be more than 10% of the entire population of Paris. Obviously, the main attraction was all the beautiful works of art, but part of the appeal was also social. In the heavily class-stratified world of old regime France, the Salon at the Louvre was one of the few places where people of all walks of life rubbed elbows and shared the same experience. Even Queen Marie Antoinette attended several salons. A leading aristocrat and a poor worker might find themselves standing shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder admiring the same painting. One visitor to a pre-revolutionary salon described it, quote, The mixing of all ranks and orders of society, every sex and age. It is perhaps the only public place in France where everything offers the precious liberty of London. End quote. It is interesting to see a Frenchman thinking of London as the ultimate benchmark of political and social freedom. His descendants would have a very different view of their neighbors to the north. By the mid-1740s, the salons at the Louvre had become such a fixture of cultural life that there was a growing public outcry to make them permanent and give the city a real public museum. The essayist Etienne de La Font de Saint Yenne wrote an open letter to the great statesman Jean-Baptiste Colbert, then serving as France's first minister. Do you imagine that these riches are displayed for the admiration and joy of the French people, for the curiosity of foreigners, for the study and emulation of our own school of painters? Know then, O great Colbert, that these beautiful works have not seen the light of day having passed from the honorable place they once held at the chambers of their owners to an obscure prison in Versailles, where they have lain dying for the past 50 years and more. Quote. King Louis XVI was not deaf to this outcry. He set aside huge sums of money for the purchasing of art for a future museum, and put a capable man in charge of the project, Count Charles-Claude d'Angervillet. You might question the government's priorities. By this point, the French monarchy was already sinking deeper into the financial hole that would eventually lead to crisis and revolution. But Louis was determined to be a good king, the people of Paris wanted a museum, and he believed in the project. And besides, his financial advisors were telling him that any sudden decreases in spending might spook lenders. And so, while the country slipped into the fiscal abyss, the government bought paintings and sculptures. In the late 1780s, the Count of Angevilliers began a remodel project to prepare the Louvre to host this new institution. This, too, was tremendously expensive, but the results were impressive. The main gallery was now lit up by a massive wrought iron skylight, a marvel of engineering and technology. The Count beamed with pride at the unveiling of the new renovations, announcing to the assembled guests, The establishment of a museum is surely not far off. He was right, the museum would open its doors just four years later, but surely nobody in the room on that day, May 15th, 1789, could have guessed what fate had in store for the country before the doors opened. The Salon of 1789 was scheduled to open in August, less than a month after the storming of the Bastille. You might think there would be concerns about mob violence, or that people had more important things on their minds, but the event went ahead as planned, and was actually quite successful given the circumstances. Attendance dropped slightly, but everything went off without a hitch. There were some minor last minute changes. The famous painter Jacques Louis David pulled his portrait of Antoine Laurent Lavoisier and his wife at the last minute. Lavoisier was an eminent scientist but his aristocratic background and work for the royal government made David's painting a poor fit for the moment. Ironically, today the painting is considered one of David's best. David's personal politics were quite radical. I've always wondered if he was moved to pull the painting in part due to embarrassment. He wanted to be a good revolutionary, and good revolutionaries don't paint admiring portraits of aristocratic royal officials. Amazingly, one of the paintings on display at the Salon of 1789 depicted the demolition of the Bastille. The painter Hubert Robert was famous for his ability to work quickly, and he had banged out a fully realized painting of the event in only a few weeks. It had been about a month since the fall of the Bastille, and already the event was passing from the realm of current events to the world of symbolism and legend. This was one of the reasons people visited the Salon especially through the turbulent and eventful years of the Revolution, and the Empire. Few painters worked quite as fast as Hubert Robert, but it was quite common to see important events from the preceding two years depicted at these salons. Photography had not yet been invented. Newspapers, pamphlets, and other printed materials sometimes included visual depictions of important news stories, but these were usually pretty crude and often bore little resemblance to their subjects. The great battles of the coalition wars and the political dramas of the revolution were little more than names to anyone who didn't directly participate. On the walls of the Louvre, people were finally able to get a glimpse of things they had heard or read about a thousand times but had not witnessed. Momentous events that had changed the course of history and would have had a direct impact on the lives of all the people who viewed them. I sometimes wonder if we modern people, who live lives saturated in media, can fully appreciate what it must have meant for people living in the age of Napoleon to finally see realistic depictions of important events. Amazingly, despite all the violence and political upheaval of the 1790s, much of which took place in the streets of Paris itself, not a single salon was cancelled. These exhibitions were simply too important to France's various governments, to the artistic community, and to the public, and so the chaotic events of the period played out in the galleries of the great museum, as well as in the streets and in the halls of power. The Salon of 1791 included a portrait by Adelaide labille guiard depicting a young up-and-coming politician and lawyer, Maximilien Robespierre. The Salon also included Jacques-Louis David's iconic painting of the Tennis Court Oath, one of the most dramatic moments of the first phase of the Revolution. Two years later, the Salon of 1793 was surprisingly apolitical. Perhaps people needed a break from the constant rumble of politics in the streets, or perhaps artists were afraid to tackle political subjects in this fraught, uncertain climate. Still, politics did creep into the Salon. The official programs identified this as the Salon of Year Two of the Republic, not as the Salon of 1793. For the first time, the event was co-sponsored not by the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, but by a new similar organization with an appropriately revolutionary name, the Commune of the Arts. Shortly after this Salon ended, the permanent collection opened its doors for the first time. Admission was free three days a week, the only rules were that you couldn't be visibly drunk, and, like all museums, you had to agree not to touch the art. Most of the permanent collection came from the former royal collection, with the addition of a few pieces that had been confiscated from the aristocracy or the church. Soon, there would be a flow of new pieces, looted in the wake of the Republican Army's conquests. By the Salon of 1795, the political climate had changed yet again. That year's exhibition opened only a few weeks after the Thermidorian reaction and the fall of Robespierre. France's most famous painter, Jacques-Louis David, was unable to attend because his Jacobin political activism had landed him in prison. However, the organizers of the Salon were gracious enough to hang David's painting, Woman and Her Son, as planned. The artist Jean-Louis Lanouville's portrait of the Jacobin politician Jules-François Paré was displayed as well. When he first sat for the portrait, Paré had been one of the most powerful men in France, minister of the interior and a close ally of the great Georges Danton. By the time the portrait was finished and hung in the Louvre, Paré was an average citizen, having lost everything in Danton's fall. He was lucky to have escaped with his freedom and his head still attached to his body. I wonder if Paré attended the Salon, and contemplated whether or not he still resembled the hopeful, handsome, confident man in that painting. In 1796, the organizers of the Salon broke with convention, and opened another exhibition only a year after the previous one. This would be the first time an image of Napoleon Bonaparte graced the walls of the Louvre, a very small and not particularly notable print by the artist Hilaire Le just one of a series of prints depicting the great generals of the Republic. Bonaparte had only been in command of the Army of Italy for a few months, so he's lucky to have been included at all. I haven't been able to find any record of Napoleon attending one of these salons. He would have had opportunities. He spent several stints in the city in his early life, both before and during the Revolution, and he was interested in culture. However, Bonaparte's first documented visit to the Louvre came in 1797, when it was the venue for a banquet in his honor, celebrating the successful conclusion of the First Italian Campaign. By the time of the next Salon in 1798, the cultural impact of the First Italian Campaign could already be seen. There was a painting of General Augereau storming the bridge at Arcole, a portrait of General Berthier painted in Milan shortly after the city fell to the French and a striking bust of Napoleon himself. Another salon was held the very next year, and it included a whole series of prints depicting the events of the First Italian Campaign by Carl Vernet. By the time of the next salon in 1800, Napoleon Bonaparte was master of France. Napoleon and this new museum at the Louvre were a perfect fit. As we've discussed in past episodes, he worked hard to paint himself as a man of intellectual substance. He'd gotten himself appointed to the Institute of France, brought the savants to Egypt, and often hobnobbed with scientists, writers, and other men of letters. Some of this was political. Napoleon had always seen intellectuals as an important part of his constituency. They weren't a particularly large segment of the population, and had little political power in their own right. But there were so many upper and middle class people under the spell of the Enlightenment that it was important for a ruler to be seen as a patron and even a participant in intellectual life. But I think some of this was also personal. Napoleon had been fascinated by the life of the mind since childhood. You might recall from our early episodes that as a very young man, Bonaparte had actually dabbled in writing himself although he never really attained maturity or success before he was swept up by the revolution and pulled in a very different direction. Still, he remained interested in intellectual life, and seems to have felt some kinship with thinkers and creators, so it's no surprise that he was immediately attracted to the Louvre. He was already familiar with several important pieces in the collection, Many had been brought to the museum from Italy or Egypt under his instructions, by his men, or had been turned over to France in treaties negotiated by Bonaparte. So perhaps it was somewhat fitting when, in 1803, the name of the institution was changed from the Central Museum of the Arts to the Napoleon Museum. During his years in power, Bonaparte was a massive influence on the museum. The most direct and obvious source of this influence was the art commissioned by the government. Napoleon had very specific ideas about how he wanted himself, his government, and important events of the day depicted by French artists. He also worked very closely with the director of the museum, a man named Vivant Denon, who we mentioned last episode. Denon and Napoleon knew each other well. He had been one of the leading savants in Egypt, and had contributed greatly to the intellectual side of the expedition. Denault came from the minor nobility and had worked as a writer, artist, and diplomat before entering Napoleon's orbit. His official titles were Director General of Museums and Director of the Napoleon Museum, but the emperor consulted him on all kinds of cultural matters. For instance, as we saw last episode, he also had a hand in designing public monuments. Denault had an artist's eye, but he was also an extremely energetic and capable administrator and organizer, a rare combination. By all accounts, Napoleon was right to place so much trust in him. Under Denault and Napoleon, the Louvre truly became what its founders had envisioned, the most important cultural institution in the world. eBay Motors is here for the ride. It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, what would it have been like to visit the Great Museum in its chaotic, dynamic early years? For starters, only a small fraction of the complex was actually devoted to the display of art for the public. The Louvre is a former royal palace, and like all the former palaces of the kings and queens of France, it is absolutely huge. A royal palace was more on the scale of a mall or a stadium or some kind of corporate or government headquarters than a residence. Remember, the very concept of a museum was still new, and people were still experimenting with the idea, trying to find out what worked and what didn't. The people steering the Louvre during this early formative period all agreed they wanted the institution to be the home and headquarters of French art. But there were many competing visions of what that might actually mean. Many of these visions were ambitious and wide-ranging. They wanted to make the Louvre the nerve center of the entire cultural world. This meant the institution would also serve as a headquarters for various artistic schools and societies. Some of France's most eminent artists were allowed to have their studios inside the complex, and, according to some sources, some of them even lived there. There were even government offices inside the Louvre. This is not a very well-known part of the history of the museum, but it would be the case for roughly two centuries. The last French government offices inside the complex closed in the 1990s. So, a visitor during this period would have seen all kinds of people coming and going. Not only fellow members of the public there to tour the galleries, but bureaucrats and politicians on state business, or artists and intellectuals on their way to work or meetings. It would have been very common to see artists or students sketching or copying in the galleries. A visit to the Louvre was not only a chance to see the collection, but a chance to peek inside the epicenter of the art world, maybe even feel like you were a participant in all the activity going on around you. As for the complex itself, as we've already mentioned, it was absolutely huge, and different parts of it looked wildly different. The galleries open to the public were newly renovated, and quite beautiful. Other areas were much shabbier having been unused for decades and fallen into disrepair. Parts of the Louvre were practically ruins, and just a short walk away you could see brand-new, cutting-edge architecture. In the early days of the Revolution, before the foundation of the museum, the great liberal revolutionary Bertrand Barre put it this way, quote, The Louvre and the Tuileries are monuments of greatness, and of indigence. The genius of art has traced their contours and raised their facades, but the dissipating indifference of several kings and the towering avarice of many ministers have disdained to bring them to completion. The revolutionaries had invested heavily in renovating and rebuilding the Louvre. They saw this project as a microcosm of their grander national project. Rejuvenating and modernizing something great that had been left to rot due to the incompetence and corruption of the old regime, just like France itself. But this process was still ongoing under Napoleon, and so a visitor under the consulate or empire might also encounter the bustle of an active construction project, workmen and managers coming and going, and supplies being delivered. If you took the time to explore the complex, You might see evidence of this, or find areas that still looked like they were falling apart. As for the galleries themselves, by our standards, they were absolutely overstuffed, packed to the rafters. Today, almost all museums leave lots of nice, neutral space around every piece, so you can contemplate each of them separately. Not so in the early days of the Louvre. Paintings were stacked five or even six high, with only a few inches of space between them. I always wonder if artists were disappointed by this. They're going to hang one of your paintings in the most prestigious museum in the world, and you show up on the day and find it nearly at the ceiling above a door or directly behind a large sculpture. The organization of the galleries was quite haphazard. All the classical sculptures were together, but other than that, there was little thought given to theme. A Renaissance still-life might be right next to a Baroque religious painting, and a contemporary history painting, and so on. Apparently, visitors sometimes saw stacks of paintings on the floor, leaned up against the wall, waiting to be hanged. So this would probably not have been the sedate, contemplative atmosphere you find in most modern museums. The Louvre would have been loud, crowded, and disorganized, bustling with all kinds of activity. This was an exciting place. No wonder tens of thousands of Parisians chose to spend their free time inside. So, we've gotten this far without actually discussing the art itself. Obviously, there are some challenges to addressing a purely visual medium in a purely audio medium. If you'd like, you can look up these paintings as I go, but as always, I'll do my best to make this digestible without visual aids. As we've seen in many past episodes, the revolution touched on almost every aspect of French society. As we've seen in this episode, the art world was no exception. We can see the innovations of the revolution reflected in culture. However, when we're talking about artistic style, there was a surprising amount of continuity. This was not like the great communist revolutions of the 20th century, which were typically followed by cultural revolutions sweeping away bourgeois art styles and promoting new styles of so-called proletarian art. There was nothing really equivalent in France in the 1790s. Today, people sometimes associate the ornate Baroque and Rococo styles with the old regime, and the more austere, Roman-influenced, neoclassical style with the Revolution. But by the 1780s, Baroque and Rococo had been out of fashion for years, and neoclassicism was already well-established. There was a shift away from religious subjects. Some of this may have been ideological, but there was also the fact that the French Catholic Church was busy fighting for its very survival, and thus not commissioning new artwork. The government was more than happy to pick up the slack. This, too, was nothing new. The French government had been a major buyer and commissioner of art since long before the Revolution. But under Napoleon, this became a major national priority. Even the emperor himself got personally involved. We've talked in many past episodes about Napoleon's keen eye for public opinion, and discussed the way he manipulated writers and the press. He had very specific ideas about how he wanted to be depicted not only his personage, but his regime, his armies, and the events of his life. He was not shy about imposing these standards on artists employed by his government. To take one example, shortly after Napoleon's seizure of power, one of the greatest French painters of this era, Antoine Jean Gros, began a new project, a depiction of the Battle of Nazareth, a small engagement during Napoleon's invasion of Syria and Palestine in 1799. Gros planned for this to be a monumental work, over 8 meters, or 26 feet wide, depicting the entire scene of the battle with hundreds of individual figures and all kinds of action. As I mentioned in our episodes on the Egyptian expedition, the seeds of the Orientalist movement were just beginning to sprout. The public was eager for depictions of the Middle East, and romantic stories of France's recent encounter with the region and its people were very popular. And of course, the painting would flatter the new government, depicting a crushing victory by Napoleon's forces, led by one of his most loyal subordinates, General Jean-Andre de The first consul visited Gros' studio to see his progress. Gros and his assistants were probably shocked when Napoleon told them this would not do. He advised Gros to cut the painting down by about 80% to roughly six feet, or just under two meters. Gro was a smart man, and he understood what advice from Bonaparte really meant, and immediately complied. And so, Gro's Battle of Nazareth exists today as just another war painting from an era that produced a lot of them. It's not particularly well-known, and is generally not considered among Groh's best or most notable work. So, why did Napoleon decide to meddle with this painting? Modern historians seem to agree it had something to do with the man Gros wanted to depict as the hero of the battle, General Junot. Junot had been one of Napoleon's most loyal followers since the very beginning. As you might recall, he had been one of Bonaparte's assistants all the way back at the Siege of Toulon in 1793. Napoleon didn't doubt Junot's personal loyalty, but he did not consider him politically reliable. Junot was an outspoken liberal and republican. During the Revolution, he had dropped out of law school to join the army to fight for his left wing beliefs, and unlike Napoleon, he had more or less stayed true to his convictions. Even as early as 1800, when Gros began work on the Battle of Nazareth, Napoleon knew he wanted to take the French government in a more conservative and authoritarian direction, and he knew his friend Junot might object. Bonaparte didn't want to do anything that might increase Junot's public profile, in case he became a critic of the government. And so, Gros' painting had to be drastically revised. Gros used the leftover canvas cut away from the Battle of Nazareth to paint a different scene from the invasion of Syria and Palestine, Napoleon visiting the plague victims of Jaffa. We discussed both the incident and the painting all the way back in episode 47. Perhaps fittingly, this was a highly propagandistic work that depicted First Consul Bonaparte in much the same way earlier artists had depicted kings and emperors. Clearly, Groh had gotten the message. Seven years later, Groh took on a very different commission from the government, a depiction of the Battle of Ilau, those two days of hell in the Polish snows, in February of 1807, which we discussed in detail in episode 100. The government told Gros they wanted realism. People were supposed to look at this painting and feel as if they were there. However, the reality of the battle had been pure horror, and the Grande Armée had failed to achieve a victory. Gros was expected to capture that hellish reality while also depicting Napoleon and the army in a favorable light, an extremely delicate proposition. Gros completed the commission in time for it to be unveiled at the Salon of 1808. Only about a year and a half after the battle itself, he called the painting Napoleon on the Battlefield of Isla. It is quite large, 7.8 meters by 5.2 meters, or about 25 and a half feet by 17 feet. It's so big, the figures in the foreground are almost life-sized. Gros depicts Napoleon and his entourage riding across the battlefield on the second day of combat. In the foreground, there are scenes of battlefield carnage, corpses and wounded Russian prisoners contorting themselves in pain, fear, and madness. In the background, we can make out battle lines and a field of blood-drenched snow, the ruined town of Eilau, and the stormy sky. Napoleon himself is just left of center, slightly illuminated by a pale light, with one hand raised and his eyes looking skyward almost as if he's offering a divine benediction to the wounded men in the foreground, some of whom are reacting as if they really are being blessed by a saint. Despite his idealized pose, Napoleon himself is depicted with surprising realism. He looks like a man burdened with the stress of command, with a wrinkled uniform, pale skin, visible stubble, and bags under his eyes. At its debut, the painting was controversial. Some loved it, But some were scandalized by the realistic depictions of the horrors of war. Some felt it was actually insulting to Napoleon, that it made him look weak and slovenly, and implied he was responsible for all this horrifying carnage. Others objected on more stylistic grounds. Gros had been trained in the neoclassical school, but in this painting, he had thrown away many of the rules of composition traditionally followed by neoclassical history painters. Gros had been much more interested in trying to capture a sense of immediacy and feeling than in checking all the boxes that art critics believed made a good battle scene. The painting had a huge influence on later artists, and is often considered a forerunner of the Romantic movement, so stylistically speaking, it seems Groh was on to something. Some viewers found the painting shocking, brutal, and lacking artistic finesse. However, Napoleon himself was so pleased that he awarded Gros the Medal of the Legion of Honor. Napoleon certainly didn't mind being depicted as a little haggard, warts and all, as Oliver Cromwell supposedly said. His tireless work ethic was a big part of his public image. He wanted the people of France to imagine him working himself to the bone in their service. So, a painting of Napoleon looking worn out, stressed, and in need of sleep didn't diminish him at all. In fact, it actually enhanced the image he was trying to project. Probably the most iconic example of this phenomenon is an 1812 portrait of the emperor by Jacques-Louis David, Napoleon in his study at the Tuileries. This is one of the most well-known depictions of Napoleon. I would wager almost everyone listening has seen it before. For starters, I've always found it interesting that this classic image of Napoleon was actually commissioned by a leading British aristocrat, Alexander Douglas Hamilton, the Marquess of Douglas, later Duke of Hamilton. People sometimes like to compare the Napoleonic Wars to the Second World War, but try to imagine a senior Nazi party member commissioning a flattering portrait of Stalin in 1943. As the title suggests, the painting depicts the emperor in his study. It is a full-length portrait, with Napoleon standing at a slight angle to the viewer. He is wearing his standard everyday outfit, an Imperial Guard colonel's uniform. As in many paintings of Napoleon, he has one hand tucked into his waistcoat. The room is dark, lit only by candlelight, which catches the white and gold on Bonaparte's uniform, making him stand out against the dim interior. His expression is calm, maybe even serene. He also looks worn out and tired. The viewer gets the impression they've just interrupted him near the end of a marathon working session. There are clues to this throughout the painting. The candles in the background are almost all the way burned, and a clock over his shoulder reads about 4.13, and judging from the light, it is 4.13 in the morning, not the afternoon. Napoleon's hair is slightly mussed, and his clothes are disheveled, as though he's been wearing them for over a day. On his desk, we see stacks of documents. Upon one of which the word code, or law in English, is visible, along with a quill pen and wax seal. From the context, it seems the emperor is up late, either drafting or reviewing new laws. Today, we're used to seeing our leaders in informal settings. In fact, legions of public relations experts are paid handsomely to try to make us think of our leaders as regular people just like us. This was not the case in the Napoleonic era. When the painting was first exhibited, most people would have been surprised, maybe even a little shocked, at the level of intimacy. They were used to seeing Napoleon depicted as a military hero, as a glorified monarch, and as a Roman statesman. But here was Napoleon the man. Of course, this was not some tender moment, the empire's greatest artist choosing to show the world the emperor's human side. David was a Bonapartist, and his artistic choices in this work were political and propagandistic. David was doing much the same thing his former student, Gros, had done with his painting of Eilau, depicting Napoleon as an ever-vigilant public servant, with almost inexhaustible energy. Surely the people of France could rest easy, knowing this great genius was working hard late into the night to serve the public interest. It was effective propaganda because there really was some truth in it, From our very earliest episodes, we've talked about Napoleon's work ethic and sense of duty. Yes, this was not purely altruistic. It was tied up with his ego and ambition. But he really did want to be a good ruler to his people, and really did work incredibly long hours to see his vision made reality. Apparently, David's approach struck a chord with the public. Before the painting was even finished, it was the talk of the Paris art world. Thousands of people flocked to David's studio to get a glimpse of the work in progress. David himself tried to explain why he thought the painting appealed to so many. Quote, because of the exceedingly close resemblance to that immortal man, no one to this day has painted such an accurate portrait, not only in the physical features of his face, but also in that air of benevolence, composure, and penetration, which never leaves it. End quote. As you can see, like Napoleon, David had a big ego and was not shy about tooting his own horn when he thought his work was good.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Napoleon, in his study at the Tuileries, makes a good contrast with another portrait of the emperor from six years earlier, painted by another of David's former students. Jean Auguste Dominique Angres, Napoleon I on his Imperial Throne. The title says it all. The painting depicts Napoleon in his full imperial regalia, red and white robes, and ermine furs, with his ornate symbols of office in hand. He stares forward, impassive and emotionless, looking every bit like a man who wields absolute power. Angres is usually considered part of the neoclassical school but in this painting he borrowed heavily from the old renaissance masters, particularly from their depictions of God and Zeus. In some ways, this is the polar opposite of the approaches of Groh and David that we just discussed. The viewer is definitely not invited to take an intimate look at Napoleon the Man. We are meant to be overawed by his power and see him almost like a god. Not only was the painting a stylistic throwback, it was also old-fashioned in its approach to its subject. David and Gros had implied that Napoleon was a good ruler because he worked so hard for his subjects. Agra's painting simply revels in his power. The Parisian public seems not to have enjoyed being reminded of Napoleon's total domination over the country when Napoleon I on his imperial throne was unveiled at the Salon of eighteen o six. The reaction from both critics and average visitors was generally negative. The painting was eventually purchased by the imperial government, but not even they liked it. One of Napoleon's senior art critics described it as, quote, "...gothic and barbarous," end quote. Others complained that the face was so idealized that it didn't even really look much like Bonaparte. The painting was given a permanent home in the headquarters of the legislative corps. Perhaps this imperious portrait was intended to remind the legislators who was really in charge. The story of this painting is an interesting illustration of something I brought up last episode. I think Napoleon's supporters, and sometimes even the emperor himself, occasionally lost sight of what made Napoleon popular among the French people. Expressions of raw power and opulent splendor had certain political uses, But by and large, for the average citizen, Napoleon was considered a good ruler because he ran the government well and watched out for the public interest. With that in mind, I don't find it at all surprising that people preferred seeing him as a flesh-and-blood person, gifted with unique talents, who was working tirelessly for the public good, rather than as some godlike figure, lording over the country like an ancient tyrant. I'd like to discuss another painting from 1812, The Charging Chasseur, by Theodore Jericho. Jericho himself was actually a product of the Louvre. He was much younger than the artists we've been talking about so far, and much of his artistic training took place at the museum. As the title suggests, The Charging Chasseur depicts a light cavalry officer on a rearing gray horse. He is twisting in his saddle, looking backwards presumably about to give his troopers the order to charge. The background is murky, mostly obscured by smoke. We can see just enough to be able to tell this is a battle scene. This dynamic composition is often seen as another harbinger of the Romantic movement. When it was unveiled at the Salon of 1812, the painting immediately generated debate, and continues to do so today. The most obvious reading of the painting is the most literal. It is a bold, visually striking battle painting. But over the years, many viewers have seen more. The officer is about to order a charge. As we discussed in our episode on the cavalry, that would mean feeding his men's aggression, getting them pumped up and ready to press home the attack, come what may. And yet, the expression on the officer's face is melancholy, maybe even resigned. Premonitions of death are a common soldier's superstition, and it has been suggested by many that that's exactly what's going on here. The officer looks sad, yet stoic, because he believes this charge will be his last, but is resolved to lead his men forward anyway, even if it means his own death. So, what looks like a relatively straightforward depiction of a military scene might actually be something much more poignant. By 1812, public enthusiasm for the war in France was flagging. Tens of thousands of Frenchmen had gone to their deaths in battle, and the casualty numbers just kept mounting. Perhaps Jericho was tapping into these sentiments. We see doubt creeping into the mind of the chasseur officer, and many in France were beginning to feel their own doubts about this war. The man in the painting was a real person, Alexandre Diodonnet, a friend of Jericho's, who really was a lieutenant in a chasseur regiment. By the time the painting was exhibited at the Salon of 1812, Lieutenant Diodonnet was in Russia, where he would soon be declared missing in action, never to be heard from again. And so, for all its boldness and dynamism, the painting can be seen as a harbinger of doom, not only for Lieutenant Diodonnet, But for the whole army, and maybe even the empire itself. Two years later, Jericho painted a companion piece, the wounded cuirassier leaving the front lines, which for some reason is usually referred to in English simply as the wounded cuirassier. You don't have to look deep into the eyes of the subject to get a sense of impending doom from this painting. A dismounted heavy cavalryman attempts to lead his frightened horse looking over his shoulder with a worried expression at a stormy sky full of black clouds. He seems to be having the same epiphany that must have occurred to many French people in 1814. He is beaten, and a terrible storm is about to break. Hopefully, this episode has helped trace the intersection of art and politics. In the age of Napoleon and the Revolution, visual art was France's pulse. The ups and downs of the country's fortunes could be seen on the walls of the Louvre, and in the very nature of the institution itself. Napoleon believed in fostering the arts. He wanted France to be a great nation, surpassing all rivals. And that wasn't just about the military, diplomacy, and the economy. It applied to culture as well. In the era before widespread mass media, art played a huge role in shaping public opinion. Napoleon understood this, and he used it to his advantage. Most French artists went along. The imperial government was one of the biggest art buyers in the world. Telling the line could be very lucrative. And, of course, they surely felt the same pressure to conform that affects anyone living under a dictatorship. However, it should be said that this was not a totally one-way street. Many artists and intellectuals genuinely supported the imperial regime. Perhaps they might have felt differently if the government hadn't invested so heavily in culture. But I think there's something more going on here. A decade after Napoleon's downfall, the great French Romantic painter Eugène Delacroix would reflect, quote, The life of Napoleon is the epic of our century for all the arts. End quote. And he was right. Bonaparte would be an enduring figure in European art, long after the French government stopped buying and commissioning flattering propaganda depictions. After the end of the empire, artists continued to explore his life and career, and the era he helped shape. Quite simply, Napoleon's story was very appealing. The dramatic rise from total obscurity to unprecedented power, the glory of his achievements both on and off the battlefield, all the colorful characters we've discussed in so many past episodes, the intriguing locations, rustic Corsica, beautiful Italy with its classical ruins, the exotic Middle East, and the huge, wide, uncharted expanses of Eastern Europe. Even the ugly story of his downfall played like a Greek tragedy, complete with that final romantic throw of the dice that ended at Waterloo, and not even his enemies could deny that he played a huge role in shaping the world of the 19th century. The romance and drama of Napoleon's story, combined with his outsized impact on the world, made him irresistible to artists. As we've talked about many times on the show, this romantic, dramatic narrative of Napoleon's life had not come about by accident. From the very beginning of his career, he had actively shaped this story. He was self-conscious of himself as a great man of history, and so he gave himself a biography to match. Sometimes that meant bending the truth, sometimes it simply meant behaving as he believed a great man should. Bonaparte lived his life like a work of art, following forms borrowed from the great masters, Caesar, Augustus, and Alexander, conscious of symbolism, creating a heightened sense of drama wherever possible, and always focused on pleasing his public. In case you think I'm reaching here, Napoleon himself actually used this same metaphor. Quote, I love power, but it is as an artist that I love it. I love it as a musician loves his violin, to draw out its sounds and chords and harmonies. End quote. The story he created was so compelling that many artists and intellectuals couldn't help but play along. They became his collaborators, both in the artistic sense of partners in a creative endeavor and in the political sense of people who become willing tools of authoritarian power. And so the myth was built. And, like all good myths, there were grains of truth to be found within. That's all for now. Before we go, I want to provide a quick update on a friend of the show, and a personal friend of mine, a man who you've heard on several past episodes, Matt Christman. A few weeks ago, Matt suffered a severe medical emergency, and has been in the hospital recovering ever since. There is never a good time to be in the ICU, but this happened to coincide with the birth of his first child. So, for Matt, this show is only about half over. You've been on two episodes, so you're not allowed to duck out during the intermission. On a more serious note, get well soon, buddy. There are a lot more people pulling for you than you could possibly know. I miss talking about history with you, and I hope by the time you hear this, we're already back to it. For the rest of you, please keep Matt and his family in your thoughts and prayers. Next time, we'll continue discussing the nature of Napoleonic rule. Until then, thanks for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we
1: explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt.